Hi, this is Mish Hancock, and you are listening to Mishmash, a place where I get to talk to the weird, wacky, wonderful people of this world, people I adore and want to know more about. Today, my guest is Chad Sabora. Chad is the co-founder and executive director of the Missouri Network for Opiate Reform and Recovery. He is a former prosecutor and a recovering addict. Chad's vision is to shatter system sameness through drug policy reform that reduces harm by looking at what we know now about substance use. Hello, Chad. Hey, Mitch. And I remember you told me that I had to say substance use, not substance abuse. Exactly. Right. Tell tell us why. Um, we have to focus on language changes um, these days. Uh, this is a mental health condition. Whether we want to have the argument about it being a disease or not, um, I just don't even entertain those arguments anymore. Uh, we know it's a mental health disorder. Uh, so we have to start using appropriate language. Uh, we're not drug addicts. We're not all these other things that we've been heard about. I, you know, I have a mental health issue, and I'm a person in long-term recovery from that issue. Um, <clears throat> we, we take cues from other... Uh, historical ways we, we dealt with other mental health issues, the way we used to categorize and stigmatize people in mental hospitals. We used to call them insane asylums. We used to do lobotomies. Uh, we're going to look back. Um, we look back now, 50, 100 years ago, at how we treated the um, people that were, <clears throat> as we called them, insane. Right. Um, with horror. We used to warehouse them in mental health hospitals, lobotomies, <laughs> shock treatment. The things we used to do to people with mental health issues is, is shameful. Right. Uh, we're going to look back 100 years from now and look how we treated drug users with that, those same eyes of shame. So we have to take cues from what we know works. What we know works is language is a key part of this. It is a huge part. And talk about that because whenever someone hears drug addict... Right. Yeah. What What do they think of? Uh, criminal, some in some alley, in a shooting gallery, robbing old ladies at ATMs. Um, <clears throat> those are all the thoughts that come to mind, and that is not actually true. I mean, I used drugs off and on um, for 17 years. Um, the only crime I ever committed was putting a substance in my body that I was told I couldn't put in my body. And I'm one of many drug users uh, that would fit into that mold. Right. Not all of us are the um, that image that pops in your head when you hear that word. There's plenty of people out there that can recreationally use illicit substances, even your more addictive and what we call hardcore substances, I guess, uh, with minimal to no consequences. And they can still go to work, function in society. It's actually the mi- minority of us that use illicit substances that will clinically developed substance use disorder. So there's an unspoken majority out there that just doesn't want to come out the closet and say, yes, I use heroin once a month or I can do cocaine once in a while and put it down. That's actually the majority. Really? Yes. Oh, educate me on this. I got I got to tell you, I was under the impression that these, that such substances were so addictive that if you go to use it, that's it, you're done. That is the 1980s dare. You smoke crack one time, you're addicted. Right, right, right. Uh, yes, yeah, sorry. I'm dating is, myself, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. I that, mean, oh, so I would, tell hey, listen, me. I'm a, I'm a product is... of the 80s dare program. <laughs> um, no, I mean, this one in five. Really? Is typically who will use substances and develop substance disorder. So that's one in five. That's not five out of five. Right. Just because I, I put something in my body that's addictive doesn't mean I'll become addicted. Um, there's repetitive use. There's um, lots of things that will go into um, somebody being that, that one in five, whether it be mental health disorders, trauma, 
adverse childhood uh, effects that they had growing up. Um, there, there's a lot that comes into play here, but we always have to differentiate the difference, difference between physical dependence and addiction. Two separate things. Gotcha. Addiction is not necessarily always defined by do I use a substance. It's defined by the consequential behavior of using said substance. We're all physically addicted to something. Coffee, coffee, right. coffee nicotine. sugar. We were just um, talking about all that. Tons yep. of individuals out there on antipsychotic medication, antidepressants, that if they stopped taking them immediately, they would suffer severe withdrawal symptoms, just like an opiate user would suffer withdrawal symptoms from not taking opiates anymore. So we really have to look at this much differently than just this broad stroke of, you use this, you're a drug addict. Got ya. That is, so what else do we need to know? What, what are, I mean, you know, dispel the myths, right? There's a lot of myths out there. And that, that's part of why I love that you came on today, you know, because I want to know. I want to know what, what, what am I seeing and hearing through the media that is not exactly on point? Pretty much everything. Yes, this this I've come to realize with. <laughs> so well, the media loves to use the phrase "opiate epidemic." It is neither um, um, singular to opioids, nor is it an epidemic. Um, if we if we look at CDC death data, we can see that every drug use is on the rise. We're seeing a rise in methamphetamines, cocaine, alcohol, you name it. Then if we look at, go back to the mortality rates, we see this rise in deaths from opiates started 40 years ago. Really? Epidemics don't last this long, and it's not just opiates. But it's good for the press because opiates in the United States, uh, Missouri is a little different, have really infiltrated your rich suburban white neighborhoods. So we we can put that out there, um, like these young white kids are dying, so people actually care. You know, when it was a crack epidemic in the 80s, the answer was Ronald Reagan's Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, um, which is what created that disproportionate sentencing between crack and powder cocaine. Just very racist policies. Plus, just say no campaign, you know, um, that's something important to talk about, is our shift when a population that that our government actually cares about starts dying. Now it's a disease. Now it's an epidemic. Now here's $5 billion. Well, where was all this funding when it was black people that were dying. Right. Missouri, right. however, is one of seven states where per capita the black population is dying at higher rates than whites. So at least our efforts now are helping everybody, especially the impoverished populations that have been most adversely affected by our war on drugs. And why do these populations get so affected? I mean, let's speak to that because that's an issue. Well, I mean, you have, you know, poverty right. is mental health. It has serious effects on somebody's mental health. Um, Being treated um, systematically like you're less than uh, creates these feelings that sometimes drugs can fill a void. Uh, So there's lots to come into play. Um, You know, nobody is um, spared uh, substance use disorder. It it could happen to anybody. I mean, I was a prosecuting attorney, you know, in Chicago with a house in the suburbs, two dogs, two cars, fiance, and I still put a needle in my arm. Uh, but there are some precursors that that, co- that come into play here. You know, poor health, you know, lack of resources, lack of education, things that we, uh, our government has done uh, to minority communities on purpose. Right. I mean, and, and so for some of these communities, there's no other option for making a living. No. I mean, there's, there's, not. there's not like there's a place you can go work down the street. 
Now, and if we go back to the 80s with what was known as the Dark Alliance uh, with uh, Freeway Rick Ross and our CIA that was helping to uh, fund Iran-Contras uh, by supplying South Central Los Angeles with uh, kilos of cocaine that could be turned into crack, I mean, we're impl- our government and, and the powers that be are implicit in helping destroy uh, minorities, especially with our drug policies. Dating back to when I gave my TED Talk, getting back to our policies around the Chinese in the mid-1800s uh, who had brought opium uh, to this country when they were building our railroads. Uh, you know, we went after that population because we were fearful that they were going to um, turn white women into their sex slaves. We went after the black and uh, Hispanic population in the 30s uh, over marijuana laws with the same fears uh, that it was going to make white women want to sleep with minorities. It's absurd. Oh, my gosh. We're going to take a quick break. We will okay. be right back with Chad Sabora. We're back with Chad Sabora. And so let's talk about your TEDx talk. Okay. I mean, what was the experience like for you? How did it feel to be at the event? Just I was- tell us. It was a really great event. It was an honor to be there. Uh, a little nerve-wracking. Um, I'm not one for preparation ever. Uh, so that TEDx talk I gave was actually like an hour and 20-minute lecture I give normally. PowerPoint, lots of pretty pictures, lots of time for explanation and questions. And I had to scale it down to 13 minutes. Don't you like how we do that to you? Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> I do think I was able to get everything into the talk. Um that needed to be said to educate people that, um, you know, our, our current uh, policy system is, is very harmful. It's still based on criminalizing drug use, and it's based on um, very severe prohibition tactics. Um, those we, we have something that we call the Iron Law of Prohibition, which was coined in 1986, uh, but is... You can go back to the data to the 1840s, you know, when you prohibit access to one substance um, without giving treatment resources or, or any type of community help, all you're doing is turning people on to the next dangerous alternatives. Uh, we've seen this systematically happen with our opioid epidemic when it was painkillers um, starting in 1996. And then in 2008, with our uh, policy work on, on, um, on, on trying to limit access to painkillers, uh, we saw a huge spike in heroin use uh, because we, tur- we took everybody and we, we sent them to the black market, mainly to get painkillers uh, because they were cut off. Um, however, painkillers can be very expensive on the black market and heroin is much uh, ready- more readily available and cheaper. Uh, so we, we played a part in that. Instead of just creating treatment resources, we right. didn't do that. And then we're seeing the same thing happen with fentanyl today, but that's just a, that's more of a natural occurrence uh, based on the fact that fentanyl is a synthetic. You don't have to grow poppies. Um, you traffic it in micrograms, not grams, so it's much cheaper to, to, to get across the border. And it, when I say border, there's lots of routes of entries for fentanyl. <clears throat> a lot of another uh, myth to dispel. Um most of our fentanyl that's coming to the United States comes through the U.S. mail system via the dark web um, and also through uh, port cities such as Baltimore. You see your highest concentration of fentanyl in the Midwest and on the East Coast, uh, New Jersey, uh, Baltimore, New York. Uh, you are still seeing what we call black tar heroin in the Southwest. So uh, there are drugs coming up from the South without a doubt. 100%. But you're still seeing more of a crude, more version of heroin coming up through that route. And so most of our fentanyl is coming in from different routes. Uh, these labs are uh, based at Turkey and China. Uh, and there's been a recent declaration from China to shut down these labs 
but I doubt that will happen. Right. And if they do, another country will pick up on that revenue source to supply our country's insatiable thirst that it still has for opioids. It's not, it's, it's, it's such a huge, I mean, I applaud you because it just feels like so much to try to, to figure out this issue and how do we, how do we bring it to a place where we can provide health for people that, that, and help, help and health for people that really need it. Mm-hmm. Tell, talk about some of the more immediate, um, you know, efforts that you guys are putting into place? Well, the most immediate efforts is we we have to change our point of contact, our continuum of care. Uh, the old the old guard treated drug users like, okay, well, when you're ready for help or you're ready to stop using drugs, call me. Or they'd have to wait for, let's say, a criminal justice intervention or, or something. But there was always that barrier of, I'm not going to help you until you stop your drug use. Got yeah. We have to go... <clears throat> We have to go much earlier than that. We, we have to start working with individuals while they're actively using with no expectations. Do I want everyone that's using to get help? And yes, without a doubt. But that's not how you approach somebody that's in the grips of active use. Right. Um, so whether somebody wants to stop or not, I can, we can still help them. We can provide them with naloxone, Narcan, so they don't die of an overdose. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can provide them with, with, with tools to prevent the spread and um, uh, getting HIV or hepatitis C. Right. Uh, we can pr- hopefully provide some type of counseling. Uh, many many drug users, their use is driven uh, by mental health issues, by like we said earlier, trauma, adverse childhood um, things that can be successfully be worked on while they're still using. And if we can kind of get to those core issues, we are going to raise their chances of not using substances anymore. But if we if we go by the old philosophy of call me when you're ready to do something different, too many will die before that happens. And they're not going to yeah. call. They, they, well, they, they, I mean, they, you know. eventually people do, most. Right. Uh, but now with fentanyl uh, completely poisoning our drug supply, the risk of death is so high that we can't, we can't just sit around waiting for the phone to ring. We have to actively go help people. So, and you do. You go out there. I mean, you, you actually go out to different areas and My help team these does, people. yeah. Not just me. Yeah. Great, great employees. We have an ambulance that goes around. It's a ambulance revamped up. It goes around the city, um, helps people that are homeless. And, you know, we also provide hepatitis C, HIV referrals for treatment, housing, lots of other things uh, to, to, to raise. I mean, poverty in the city is horrible. Um, just to raise people's um, quality of life a little bit. Because sometimes raising somebody's quality of life and giving them some hope uh, that things can be better is another key ingredient in them achieving some type of recovery. Wow. And, you know, it's it, – so being, you know, the so many of us, we don't see it, right? It's just not in our neighborhood, no. right? Well, no, it is. Well, it is, yeah. right. But, you know, those are the functioning people, yeah. you know, probably the, the four out of the five. Although, I know. 3.5 if going by stats. <laughs> Yeah, I got you. Um, <laughs> come on, Miss, get it together. But, but you know, I mean, how did you come to find all these different areas that you guys drive to and help? And oh, that's just—I mean, I I use drugs here. Um, before I got sober, we we employ active drug users, um, and they know where people are. So we you just employ use- active drug users. Yes. Wow. That's awesome. I did not know that. Just because you, you use drugs doesn't mean you lose right, your right, right. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. I think that that makes a lot of sense. It would. It, I think the the model that you have put together is not one that most people would think of. 
Yeah. It's a perspective changing thought, right? It is, but we're not we're, we're not trailblazers here. This, you know, Sweden started some most of this work in 1986. Really? Um, and then Baltimore, we took a lot of cues from Baltimore from a group called Be More Power, which is a peer-run group. Lots of organizations will utilize people still actively using. Uh, we have one resident at our sober house now who was homeless, actively using. He helped us with some street outreach because he knew where to go. And then we, we spent working with him long enough and building that bond where he's like, all right, I'm ready to stop now. First time in a long time, and now he's one of the anchors at our sober houses. Um, he's a leader. Uh, he ha- he's been uh, in recovery now for a couple months, uh, and it all started with just making him feel like he was he he was worth something. Right, that's amazing. I love it. Well, we'll take another quick break, and okay. we will be right back. We are back with Chad, Chad Sabora. So, okay, Chad, let me ask you about this. So you um, you have worked for reform, legalization of syringe access. Talk about that. <laughs> okay. Is that a we're funny going question? On, we're going on year six of that legislation. So uh, syringe access programs, formerly called needle exchange programs, um, have been around since the late 80s, legally. Um, they are supported by our current Surgeon General, Vice President, last Surgeon General, last whole administration, CDC, World Health Organization, uh, you name it, every single health body on the planet supports these programs. It reduces the spread of HIV, hepatitis C, it gets dirty needles off the streets. Um, People that use uh, syringe access programs are five times more likely to enter treatment. Um, So it actually will reduce the amount of users in a community that has these programs. Right. Zero people are initiated into um, IV drug use because of the existence of a needle exchange program. It's just it's just fear. But that myth is still out there. Yes, that myth still is still out, out there. there. Yeah. So we have tried. Um, I've tried, and my organization has tried for years uh, to get this legislation passed in Jefferson City to no avail. We always get out of the House with only a handful of no votes, and then it always gets hung up in the Senate. Um, we have a serious hepatitis C problem in St. Louis. Our infection rates are through the roof. Uh, Missouri has 13 counties on the CDC's hot hot radar list for possible HIV outbreaks. Um, uh, and why the fact, won't they pass it? What is there? Do they? Why? The stigma around it. They think we're enabling. Oh. Like, you know. Oh, you're just. Oh, you're just helping people get. Listen, a drug user is going to use no matter what, and we're going to use dirty needles. Right. We're going to share needles. Um, you know. And there will be no state or federal tax dollars uh, that assist these programs. They're all they're all done through private uh, foundations such as um, AIDS United, uh, Elton John Foundation, things like that. The amount of money taxpayers pay right now from the unintended negative consequences of not having needle exchange programs is massive. The state spends close to sixty million dollars a year. Uh, for treating hepatitis C cases. So needle exchange programs or syringe access programs could technically cut that in half. So for no cost to you as a taxpayer, we can save you $30 million a year. Many diseases, um, other diseases besides hepatitis C and HIV, um, can happen uh, from reusing uh, dirty needles or sharing needles. So there's millions of dollars of hospital bills that go unpaid from endocarditis and other uh, bacterial-related issues. So not passing this legislation costs the state of Missouri and its taxpayers upwards of $50 million a year. 
and oh there are zero, zero consequences that would cause any type of tax burden on the citizens. Um, no new drug users, no tax dollars are spent uh, for the syringes, for employee salary, for things like that. So the fact that it's just common sense legislation, um, you know, we had three very red states like Missouri pass theirs this year. Idaho, Alabama, and Florida all passed their uh, uh, syringe access bills, uh, but we're still stuck here in Missouri. Oh my gosh, that's just maddening. You deal with a lot of difficult issues and people and subjects and how do you, Chad, rejuvenate? How do you get up every morning other than coffee? (laughs) I mean, what do you do to take care of yourself? Um, I got two amazing kids. I got Jason's three and Maddie's one. So, um, you know, um, I want a better world for them. Um, You know, I want to teach them better about, you know, people that use drugs and, you know, teach them empathy and that people deserve second chances and help. Um, so just because of them. And what do you guys go do? What is your, what is your, what's the fun stuff? I mean, I work a lot. <laughs> I know you do, but you um, have to have some time where you're not working. I'm, I'm, I'm getting there. I'm working on some balance right now in my life. Got you. Well, I got to meet your son. Who is crazy adorable, by the right. way, yeah. and I mean, just. But what what I thought was interesting is he's only three, yes, and I felt like he already had great awareness at being only three years of age. That comes from somewhere. I know he he knows how to pick locks. <laughs> he'll he'll he'll, uh, he'll go to the bathroom door and he'll lock it and then close it and he'll like make this face and then he'll run and get a butter knife and he'll. Oh, it's really easy. It's not like but pay, it's still, just, yeah. but that age, you yeah. can figure yeah. that out. That, I mean, I was I, I was struck by that when I met him. Yeah, just yeah. watching him run around and the things he was saying and doing, I was like, this is a really aware kid at oh, three. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's awesome. So congratulations on that one, Dad. Thanks. So tell us where everybody can find you. Uh, so um, <clears throat> we are uh, open seven days a week, uh, Mo Network Outreach Center. Uh, we're at 4022 South Broadway, St. Louis, Missouri, 63118. We have an 800 number that's answered kind of 24 hours a day. Um, so that's 844-REBEL-UP. Uh, so we provide uh, hepatitis C, free referrals to hepatitis C treatment for the uninsured, naloxone access, treatment referrals, housing, uh, peer support, Tons of groups, free yoga, free acupuncture, free self-defense, family support groups, grief support groups. Uh, we just have an amazing group of uh, uh, women that help run this center. We call them our Monet Moms. Um, moms that you know have children in recovery, have children actively using, have children that have passed, have all kind of come together to help us build this organization. Wow. And we're uh, on, on um, <clears throat> website is monetwork.org. And we're in the process also, and we will open um, late July, early August. We are opening up a uh, 55-acre residential treatment center in uh, Dittmer, Missouri. Oh, wow. Yes. So that is uh, Sana Lake uh, Recovery Center. So sanalake.com is a website. It's still being built, but I think it's live right now. Um, We don't have the best treatment in Missouri. Um, we have some amazing facilities, but we always need more. Uh, so me and my three partners, um, <clears throat> we took a vision, we found the property, and we, were, we, are, we are working very diligently to make this a destination uh, uh, type of center uh, to provide the highest level of care for people that need it. Love it. 
Chad, thanks for all the work you're doing. Well, for thanks me. for having me, Mitch. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Of course. And for everyone out there, you've been listening to Mishmash Podcast. Go to iTunes and subscribe. Have wonderful days. Love you all very much. Bye.